kindergarten to grade six. Thanks, Matt, and thanks, worship team. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks, and uh, I'd like to welcome you, both those of you who have gathered with us in the chapel this morning, and uh, also our friends who are joining us online this morning. Um, <clears throat> let me pray before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we're going to open up your word, Lord, and we know that on our own, uh, our capability to understand it uh, is limited. But we have your promise that you are with us here, in us and amongst us, um, desiring that we meet you and see you in that word. And so our desire, Lord, our prayer, um, is that you, that through your power, will open up our hearts of understanding um, so that we can be drawn to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, this week, we are introducing a brand new uh, five-part sermon series that we're going to be uh, doing uh, through September and into the beginning of October. The new series that we're starting actually segues kind of quite nicely out of the series on Colossians that we were uh, studying over the summer. If you saw the, the service last week, you'll know that Pastor Zach was preaching, and uh, as he unfolded what the Apostle Paul had to say um, in the, the final verses of his letter to the Colossians, it's very clear that, that Paul um, communicated to the Colossians the idea that the business of making disciples, the business of telling um, others uh, the good news of Jesus Christ, the business of, of offering Christ and the Christian faith and Christian life for the consideration of other people um, belongs to all of us as members of Christ's body. And um, we're called to do that. But I think anyone uh, uh, who has had the experience of talking about their faith, particularly with people who may not be believers or who may have some skepticism um, about belief, um, will have the experience that eventually there are some really challenging questions that come up in the conversation. There are some big issues which are sources of doubt and concern and hesitation and confusion among people, and encountering those issues and not knowing how to address them can be a real stumbling block to bearing witness uh, to other people. Um, but it's important that when those questions are asked of us, we have the, the answers to give, that we have the answers uh, worked out and for ourselves so that we can share them. In fact, Zach quoted this passage from uh, 1 Peter last week, and I'll, I'll repeat it. Um, Peter admonishes Christians in, um, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14, saying, Look, as followers of Jesus Christ, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So that idea that we need to be prepared to give an answer to those hard questions has given us the title of our series um, this fall. The title is Be Prepared, Five Big Questions, because over the five weeks, we are going to address five really big common challenges, issues about what the Christian faith says and does, and those questions are questions which can be a real challenge. The purpose of this series is so that we all can better equip ourselves to have answers to those questions 
for ourselves, for our own faith, but also so that we can give answer to others to whom we're bearing witness. The first question uh, that we're going to tackle, the one we're going to do this morning, is the question, is the Bible reliable? Um, and uh, we have the Bible here to you know, keep you reminded of what our focus is this morning. It's very deliberate that we're starting with this, because throughout the history of the church, for the last you know, 2,000 years, um, it has been through Scripture that individual um, believers and the church itself have engaged most robustly. It's through the engagement with Scripture that we have formed and anchored our beliefs as individual followers of Jesus and as a church. And so if the Bible doesn't work, if the Bible isn't reliable, it's kind of hard to make the rest of the claims of the Christian gospel um, work. So that's where we're going to start with. Um, <clears throat> I estimate that uh, covering this topic adequately will require approximately eh, 40 to 80 hours. Um, but here's, here's, a really, here's a really quick high-level overview of what the Bible is, right? The Bible isn't actually a single written work that was written by one author sort of at one time in history. It is a curated collection of different writings. In fact, in the, the Protestant uh, version of the Bible, there are 66 different writings. They're by a wide range of different writers. They're documents in a wide range of different genres. Some of them are designed to be histories. Some of them are designed to be books of poetry and music. Some of them are designed to be stories from the life of individual people. Some of them are, are works of philosophy. Some of them are uh, biographical accounts from the life of Jesus. And some of them, including the book of Colossians that we were looking at last week, was a letter that was written by one of the apostles to a specific church at a specific time. The um, original documents of, the, of the, the Bible were written in three different ancient languages. And, of course, over time, the Bible has been translated into hundreds of different languages. What Christians generally believe, the most central belief that we have about the Bible is, is that the Bible is the Word of God. Right? It is the Word of God. We believe that... This book wasn't just written by men, but it was written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In essence, God inspired the writers of the Bible to write the things that they wrote. Now, across the, the 2,000 year history of the church and across the broad sweep of the church in the world today, there are variations uh, of understanding of exactly what that inspiration looks like. There are uh, Christians, churches, denominations, movements who, who take the approach that every single word in the Bible is inspired and chosen by God. The words individually were curated by God. There are others, many within the broad sweep of the Christian church, um, who think that the ideas come from God, that the inspiration for the ideas come from God, but that the selection of the specific words um, has been left up uh, to the writers who are trying to be faithful to God's Spirit. Um, <clears throat> there are others, however, who believe that God's inspiration has been involved at kind of every step uh, along the way. So it wasn't just that God 
um, inspired the original people who wrote the texts, in some cases, you know, thousands of years ago, um, but that since then, as the documents have been transcribed and edited and, and uh, passed down through the generations and uh, translated into other languages, that the Holy Spirit was active in all of these processes as well, making sure that um, the uh, contemporary English Bible that you, you know, hold in your hand in the year 2023 is, in fact, the inspired Word of God. Now, what is it that Christians think the Bible is for? Well, um, the Bible, the question here is what, what role does it play in Christianity? What's the relationship of the Bible to the faith that, that we uh, possess? Now, the most common place you are going to see an answer to that, and many of you will have, have um, heard sermons in which this, you know, this was put in front of you. There's a very well-known verse in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, at verses 16 to 17. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It may also, and as I say, this is, this is probably the most standard response that most Christians, contemporary Christians would give to, to hey, what is it that the Bible's for? Um, Seven Oaks Alliance Church is part of a denomination, the Christian and Missionary um, Alliance Church in Canada, and it's probably helpful for us to take a look at what it is that uh, the Alliance thinks about Scripture, because as an Alliance Church, um, we ascribe to a statement of faith, which is common to all Alliance churches in Canada, and our statement of faith does, in fact, address the question of Scripture. In Article 4 of the Statement of Faith, it says this, the Old and New Testaments, inerrant as originally given, were verbally inspired by God and are a complete revelation of His will for the salvation of people. They constitute the divine and only rule of Christian faith and practice. Now, as I say, we could spend a lot of time um, unpacking the specific meanings of those terms and how that contrasts to what some other movements within Christianity may think specifically about Scripture and, and inspiration and purpose. But it's sufficient for our purposes today to say that the gist of what Article 4 of the Alliance Statement of Faith says is this. It says, look, God wrote this book. And because God wrote this book, this is what we read to find out essentially two things. What God intends us to believe and what God intends us to do. Right? That's a, probably a fair summary of what Article 4 says, and that's completely consistent, I think, with um, what we saw in, in the passage from Timothy, what Scripture says itself about, about what its purpose is. So, there you go. There's the, there's the, there's the first two days of the course. We've gone through those. Um, but here's the question. The question before us, is it reliable? Does it reliably do that? Can you rely on it? Can I rely on it to do that thing? If that's the, job's Bible, the, the, the Bible's job, does the Bible do its job well? Does it do it reliably? If I want to know what God intends for me to believe and intends for me to do, can I rely on this book to tell me 
that, right? Now, the answer, and I know that, that you've been dying to find out what the answer to this is and, and may be shocked, but the answer is yes. Um, the Bible can, however, however, um, there are really good reasons why people doubt that. There are really good reasons why people are challenged by that idea. There are really good reasons why people have difficulty embracing and accepting and living into that idea. I mean, off the top, if you don't actually believe in God, if you don't believe there's a God, I think it's fair to say that the Bible isn't a reliable guide to what he wants, right? And for that matter, if you don't believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, if you don't believe this is, you know, a God-inspired, God-written, curated book, you may believe in God and you may desiring to know what God's will is for you in your life, but um, you're not going to give much weight to this book because you're going to say, this is a book which was written by humans and it may or may not tell me what God's will is. But those are kind of by the, by the side things. Those I, I think are pretty much no-brainers. There are two much bigger issues that make it difficult sometimes to embrace the idea or to convince other people to embrace the idea that the Bible's reliable. And one of these is, has to do with what a long journey it is from the original handwritten manuscripts which were produced by the original writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right? It's one thing for us to say when Paul sat down and wrote his letter to the Colossians, Paul, who had this special relationship with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit used Paul, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul, the Holy Spirit told Paul exactly what to write because that, those were the words that God intended for us to read 2,000 years later. But then how did that handwritten letter that Paul sent to Colossae, what's the chain from that letter to this? How confident can I be that the words that I read in this particular translation of the Bible that I have in my hand in the year 2023, that these words actually match the words that Paul wrote on that piece of paper 2,000 years ago? Ever since the pandemic, we've all come to recognize that there's a term for this problem. There are supply chain issues, right? There are supply chain issues because here's the deal. Just, I mean, really quickly, I don't want to dwell on this for too long, but um, the earliest the earliest books in the Old Testament were written a thousand years before the birth of Christ. And the most recent ones were written in the first century after his death, so 2,000 years ago. So it's been two or 3,000 years. During the first 2,500, 3,000 years or, or so, um, there was no printing press. The printing press wasn't invented until the, until the 14th century. And so for the first you know, couple of thousand years that these documents were being passed down, Copies were being made by hand, by thousands of different, you know, scribes or monks or, or scholars or, or, you know, court officials. Um, everything was being done by hand until the printing press came along, you know, um, 500 years or so ago. Right? That's a long chain. Um, it, most, or many people won't know that it wasn't until around the 5th century, like four or five centuries after Christ, that the church finally sat down and came to a kind of a consensus about which Christian writings do we view as being part of the Bible and 
which other Christian writings don't we view as being part of the Bible? It took a long time for the canon to be settled, and frankly, it's not actually settled, because although we as Protestants use a Bible that has 66 books in it, half of the Christian population of the world, Catholics, uh, Orthodox Christians, Anglicans, um, use a version of the Bible that has several other Christian writings in it, books known as the Apocrypha, right? And this is before we get to the issue of translation. I mean, the Bible has been translated into hundreds and hundreds of languages, praise God. And then in individual languages, it's been translated into multiple versions. Many people, I think, will be surprised to know that over the years, there have been literally hundreds of different English translations of the Bible. Right now, in 2023, if you go searching hard on the internet, there are at least a hundred English versions of the Bible in print, all slightly different from each other, because they're different versions or translations of the Bible. So there's, there, there's some supply chain issues here, and here's the challenge, right? The big question for us is, is the Bible reliable? And we might say yes to that. But I'm holding in my hand a 1984 uh, New International Version of the Bible um, uh, that I use quite a bit. And there's still this question, which is, is my Bible reliable? And knowing that different Christian translators have translated the documents differently and have used different words to create this version, is it any wonder that people, whether they're inside the faith or outside, can go, if that's true, like how can, how can the Bible, how can I be sure it's reliable, right? Has the Holy Spirit directly inspired all 100 English translations, or is it just some? Is it just the ones that my denomination likes? How do I know which one? And keep in mind, you may feel pretty settled about that inside of your faith, but if you're trying to explain this thing to somebody from outside the faith, it's hard to say, yeah, there are a hundred different English versions of it, but they're all the Word of God and they're all completely reliable. That, that's a challenging question to have to face if you're talking to somebody about why they don't really buy this Bible and Christianity thing. And I think, even if we could get that one sorted out, we have a deeper challenge, right? Because even if every single Christian in the world, there are several billion of us right now, but if every single Christian church, denomination, um, uh, local variation, pastor, preach, scholar, and academic, all agreed on a single written English version of the Bible. Say we all agreed on that, it would still be the case that across the Christian faith, there would be many, many different individual Christians, preachers, pastors, churches, denominations, who would read the exact same words and arrive at different conclusions about what they say. Now, there are dozens and dozens of contemporary examples of that that I could cite to you, but really, um, at Seven Oaks, the easiest one is, um, has to do with our recent experience, which is, does the Bible say that women can be elders in a church, or does it say that they can't? Well, we as a church just went through a, a long and deep season of discernment to uh, arrive at a conclusion as to whether we were going to have women on our board of elders. And the position of the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Canada is that the Bible is the inerrant Word of God. It's the only a divine rule for Christian faith, but it is perfectly legitimate 
to read the Bible and arrive either at the conclusion that women elders are okay or that women elders are prohibited. And I actually think that's a good thing in our life together in the church in terms of what we're trying to do. But you can see how for somebody outside of the faith, they say, or even somebody inside of the faith says, how can I rely on the Bible to tell me what God wants me to believe and what God wants me to do if um, different Christians can read the same words and come up with different, even opposite interpretations of what it says? How can my Bible be reliable under those circumstances? I think to solve this challenge, this set of, of doubts and difficulties, it may be helpful for us to go back to our summer series on the book of Colossians. Because in that series, you, you may remember I, when I did the introduction of the series back in July, I said, look, you've got this church at Colossae. They've been there for a little while. They're growing. They're exploring their faith. They're trying to figure out how to be the church. They're trying to figure out what they're supposed to understand about God, what they're supposed to believe, what they're supposed to do, how are they supposed to worship, these kinds of things. But it's clear from Paul's letter um, that they'd gotten off track, that they were, they were getting down the wrong avenues. And so Paul writes to them to, to set them straight. And the gist of what he says to them is this, look, you've become so hung up on getting the rules and the regulations and the rituals right that you've forgotten who it is that we're following. You've been so hung up on doing, figuring out how to do this right that you've forgotten who it is that, that we are full of the Spirit of. That's what Paul says to them at that time, right? He says, essentially, faith is not about believing the right things and doing the right things so that you can be closer to God. Faith, Paul says, is about getting closer to God, being closer to God, surrendering yourself more to God, seeking God, leaning into our mystical union with God, doing those things so that God can teach us the right things to believe and the right things to do. And I think that sort of approach to setting the Colossians straight can be helpful in our discussion of whether or not the Bible is reliable. Um, not because the Colossians had the same Bible that we do. Um, they didn't. They did have Old Testament scripture, largely the same Old Testament scriptures we have. Um, and they had the teaching of the apostles but they didn't have the New Testament yet. But nonetheless, even with the Old Testament and with the teaching of the apostles, I mean, these are churches who had the direct opportunity to be taught by the men who knew Jesus in the flesh. And they still had all kinds of challenges with different interpretations of what is it that we're supposed to be doing. And so I think the advice that Paul gives them can be transferable to this challenge that's in front of us. And I think if Paul were to apply that wisdom to this, he might say, look, perhaps the question isn't, can Scripture be relied upon to do what we want it to do, what we expect it to do, what we need it to do for us? Maybe that's the wrong question. I think Paul would say the right question is, can Scripture be relied upon to do that which God intends for it to do for him. 
because I think we have a tendency to lose sight of the fact that we didn't write the Bible. God wrote the Bible. And our agenda for the Bible is way less important than God's agenda for the Bible. Our needs, what we need the Bible to do for us is, is less important. It has to be less important than what is it that God needs the Bible, intended the Bible to do for us? And the answer to that question, the answer to, okay, what did God intend, um, I think can be found in this passage that we're going to look at. We are going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 to 11. And when I say take a look at, I don't mean now the sermon's going to start. Um, uh, Atypically, I've loaded our primary text passage near the end of the sermon. You'll like that part. Look, this is what Isaiah 55 says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. And I love this, the, 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 the writer then quotes God, and God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then this beautiful poetic image. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seeds for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. God says, just as the rain comes down, and it doesn't just land on the earth, but it comes for the purpose of nourishing uh, all life on earth, bringing growth and health and life and vitality to the entire creation, so my word, like rain, goes out from my mouth, and it does not just return to me empty. This little passage has three extraordinary little bits in it I want to bring to your attention. Number one, there's the subtle but I think important distinction that God doesn't just give us his word, he sends his word to us. This this isn't a passive thing, this is an active thing. God is sending his word to us, and this passage makes clear he sends it for a reason. He sends it to achieve his purposes. The second thing that's remarkable, and it's a good thing that that earlier in the passage God said, my ways are so much higher than, different than your ways, my thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts, because this next idea is a bit of a mystery for us to grasp with, but it's there, and it's that the remarkable idea that not only is, is God's word sent to us, but somehow his word returns to him. God's word isn't just sent to us, it returns to him. It sounds to me like what we're hearing here is, and uh, this will be a controversial statement, the Bible isn't a message. 
Now, apologies to the, the late, great Eugene Peterson, um, who, uh, you know, wrote a wonderful uh, and very popular um, contemporary translation of, of the New Testament and the Psalms called The Message. Um, apologies to Eugene Peterson, but the Bible isn't a message. The Bible is a conversation. The Bible is a dialogue. It's an interaction between the sender, God, and the recipients, us. God speaks and we reply. We reply with our thoughts. We reply with our hearts. We reply with our spirits when we encounter God in the conversation inside of Scripture, right? The Bible isn't, to read the Bible, isn't to pick up a document that was written somewhere between a thousand, you know, two or three thousand years ago. To read the Bible isn't to pick up a document that was written, you know, centuries ago and then passively try to understand true with the help of pastors and preachers and, and teachers and, and, you know, books that you read and things you watch on TV. But nonetheless, to passively try to understand what that book says, right? That's not what it is to read the Bible. To read the Bible is to accept an invitation to come into the presence of and have a conversation with he who sent it to us. That's what the Bible is. And the third thing that is striking in this passage that we were looking at, right? The third thing is the powerful assertion that this word which is sent by God and which returns to God doesn't return empty. I think we can sum up that, sum up, up that idea by saying God doesn't attempt things. God does things. In this passage, God is speaking and He says very clearly, when I send out my word, it accomplishes the purpose that I sent it out for. It does not return to me empty. As I wrap up, I want to call the worship team up. The question for us today is, is the Bible reliable? Now, earlier my answer to that question was yes. I'm actually going to change my answer, um, you know, now that you're more mature Christians as a result of hearing me preach. Um, <laughs> the answer, I think, is it depends, right? If there is no God, then the Bible isn't reliable. If God didn't write the Bible, good-intentioned uh, religious men wrote the Bible, then I don't think it's going to be reliable for us. If, as some Christians believe, God inspired the writing of the original documents, but didn't play any role in making sure that the, 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 the translation in English that you're reading two or 3,000 years later had the same level of inspiration, if God... Uh, uh, did that, then again, I have a hard time thinking that this is reliable, and I'd have a hard time convincing a non-believer that they should rely on it, right? And I'll say this, and this is probably the most controversial thing that I'll say, if God inspired the whole process, if God 
was directly involved in making sure that this Bible in my hand contains the words that God wants me to read so that I'll know what to believe and what, what to do. Even if all of that is true, if what happens then is God leaves the Bible on a table for me, I pick it up, I read it on my own, and I try to understand what it says. Because of how sinful and broken and imperfect and unable to stand, understand God's thoughts I am, I don't know how reliable it's going to be in that context, right? If our idea of what the Bible does, of what reading the Bible looks like is you and I sit in a room and we read the Bible and God sits outside in another room waiting to find out what we think about his book. If that's what's going on, the conclusions that we arrive at are probably not going to be reliable. But I'm telling you, none of those things is, is the whole story of what reading the Bible is, or even an accurate representation, because if reading the Bible involves a direct engagement with God in the person of the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power and presence and activity of the Holy Spirit, if reading the Bible is that, then it's completely reliable. And I'm here to tell you, that is what reading the Bible is. Now listen, as uh, members of the Christian Missionary Alliance, we saw, we believe that this book contains the words, the words of God. It is my deep conviction, and I hope it's yours too, that God did play a role did have control, did through the inspiration of His Spirit, make sure that the words that we've been reading this morning are the words He wanted us to read. That's an absolute conviction of mine. It's a conviction of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, I hope it's a conviction of yours. But that's not why the Bible's reliable. The Bible isn't reliable because it contains the words of God. The Bible is reliable because it is a place where we can have a living encounter with the one person who the Bible itself refers to as the Word of God. And as we're told in that passage from Isaiah, God's Word does not return to Him empty. 